0: Welcome to Biographicon.
1: Welcome to Biographicon, the podcast series that shines a light on little known figures who played a big role in Northern Enlightenment. This episode is about the antiquary Joseph Ritson, an early ethnographer, ardent supporter of the French Revolution, atheist. And vegetarian activist who was born in Stockton on Tees in the county of Durham in 1752. I met Professor John Mee from the University of York in a cafe in Stockton to find out more about the cantankerous Joseph Uh, Ritson. so I, th- I think if I had to sum up uh, in a sentence why I'm interested in Ritson, Joseph Ritson, I think it's because he's responsible for making Robin Hood a champion of the poor within English culture, so that's no mean feat in terms of national myth-making. Would you say that's true, though? Yeah, I certainly
0: think it's true. I mean, it's Ritson who really uh, starts collecting what are popular songs and ballads. They've been circulated. they're still in print, they've been in print for a long time. Uh, And you could buy them for a penny, a bit more, at a market store anywhere in England. But he starts to see them as a product of a particular sort of culture that he he sees as a culture of the people. In a way, he has a kind of theory, an idea of popular culture. And his Robin Hood is a social bandit. You know, it's a Robin Hood who is redistributing wealth around Britain. And it's no coincidence that that collection, Robin Hood comes out in 1795, six years after the French Revolution shortly after Ritson's started addressing all his letters, not to where quite everybody is not that dafty, he got arrested to Citizen and using the French Republican uh, calendar. So in Ritson, you get this odd mix of meticulous scholarship insisting that these ballads, traditional ballads, aren't prettied up, that we try and find the oldest copy, but don't bring them into a sort of modern, polite, literary form. And at the same time, there's an ideological agenda for him. This is a a culture of the people that he wants to celebrate. He actually says in one of his letters, I would be tout a fait sans culotte. You know, I want all the time to separate the culture of the people. So, you know, that really is, I think, what's going on in, in Ritson's rediscovery of Robin Hood. There's that real purpose to what he's doing.
2: I am an advocate for legitimate expressions and grammatical accuracy, both in pronunciation and orthography. I abominate all refinements and restrictions. And wish everyone at full liberty to adopt the language of Rabelais or Verville. In short, I detest every species of aristocracy and would be tout à fait sans culotte.
0: Uh, and Rab- I mean, Rabelais is an interesting person to be interested in, famously, sort of scatological, rude French satirist. And that's the kind of aspect of popular culture that the Ritz and relishes. It's, to use a trendy modern term, he likes the carnivalesque, that celebrated, the farting, coughing, drinking, falling over aspect of popular culture is what Ritson wants to keep in the ballad tradition and what a lot of his polite reviewers thought was outrageous that he should leave those, those things in. And you, really came upon Ritson for the first time by after reading Marilyn Butler yeah well in fact she was my she supervised my PhD she was King Edward the seventh professor of English at Cambridge you know big grand title and she was a, a great person um, very eminent person but in all her work from the very beginning she saw the kind of um, revival if you like of English vernacular literature associated with romanticism as a product of this provincial enlightenment the interest of people like Ritson in a culture of the people, especially in their local culture, in dialect and things like that, for for somebody like Marilyn Butler, uh, Ritson is somebody who deeply influences somebody like Wordsworth who's going back to an idea of an Englishness. Now that plays out in the period in different ways, for some people they're trying to recover an Englishness that, that can make the basis or the core, if you like, of a national myth that's quite conservative. But for others like Ritson, there's a celebration of plurality. The idea of your locality having its own voice is really, really interesting. So similarly, he's interested in Scots and Irish and, and um, antiquities. And he had a lot of collaboration and communication with Scottish and Irish antiquarians, including uh, Burns, who he was an influence of, even though he could be quite rude about the Scots at times. He himself thought Scottish popular culture was brilliant. And he celebrated the fact that he saw its muse the lyric muse as he said in 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 Scots traditional songs was always tumultuous was revolutionary uh, and so he, you know he sees this idea of an, a british culture that's plural that's based in local identities and that goes all the way back uh, to a culture of the people
1: enlightenment studies typically have uh, focused on the superstars the philosopher superstars but um, recent studies have expanded the whole idea of enlightenment haven't they
0: yes I think that's a really good point so you know once upon a time the Enlightenment meant you know Locke, Newton, Voltaire, Rousseau your big hitters uh, but increasingly people are saying what was distinctive about the Enlightenment and this does include things like the encyclopedia you know you wanted to kind of gather knowledge together and circulate it and bring more people into uh, a culture of knowledge, a knowledge economy if you like, which we'd say now, uh, which print and the circulation print was absolutely essential. There's been a lot more work on that. Also including thinking about figures who are an enablers, which Ritson is very much a case of. The people who put people together, put ideas into circulation, make people available. Not your big geniuses who are sort of isolated, lighthouses emitting knowledge, but the actual the connectivity of things. Uh, enabled by newspapers, the growth of reviews and journals, transport, canals, the states coast improving, the idea of something that knowledge was going to be uh, more and more broadly available. And that makes us look different at uh, other aspects of cultural history, like the phenomenon of Romanticism, you know, literary Romanticism, often associated with words with the lyrical ballads. This is a new absolute break in culture that produces this genius. But the whole idea of the lyrical ballads is picking up on the interest in uh, the literature of the people, ballad collections. You could say that Courage and Wordsworth are the products of this provincial enlightenment. They start to be interested in recovering a kind of English past. Now, in a sense, what takes over in them is that their investment in their own careers, and people like Thomas de Quincey wanting to read Wordsworth as the great isolated genius. But de Quincey only really knows about Wordsworth because people in places like Liverpool are telling him about this new poet. And we know that the Newcastle lit film buys a copy of Lyrical Ballads in 1798 while it's still anonymous. So, in a sense, this interest, this broad interest in the idea of the popular lyric and the ballad, brings Wordsworth into being. It enables him to have a career. Things may happen after that. Wordsworth may have his own view, a different way of reading, much more as a great English poet may take over. But, in a sense, they wouldn't have Wordsworth. There wouldn't be the idea of producing a volume like Lyricopolis if it wasn't for this provincial enlightenment that makes all these ideas available and I think Ritson's somebody at the very heart is one of these great node figures, one of these connectors that makes all these things possible.
1: Ritson's this kind of really subversive character within antiquarianism, isn't he? So where did all this come from? How did Ritson become the person that he was,
0: I mean what was his background? So Ritson's born into, you know, not a poor yeoman Yeoman stock, as they say, in Stockton, in the northeast uh, of England. And the point about that region is that there is a provincial enlightenment going on. You know, there are newspapers forming, things are circulating, knowledge is being circulated to all parts of the country through various kinds of institutions, through improvement in transport. The transport revolution is very important to these things, as is the growth of newspapers. And from quite early on, Ritz and gets a taste for the world of letters. Uh, I think facilitated first of all by the local uh, poet John Cunningham who gives him contacts with the local newspapers where he starts to publish poetry. Then he gets apprenticed to a lawyer. Now you might think well, you know, that's a bit boring, isn't it? Conveyancing work, but conveyancing work is all about looking at ancient documents, deeds, who owns this land, where does this come from? And you can see that that Ritson gets a real taste for black letter copy for old documents printed in old forms, and he wants to get to the bottom of things, and that's what Ritson's like. He wants to get to the bottom of things. He becomes friendly with Thomas Holcroft, who's part of a local uh, touring acting company based in Durham, and you can see there that. And the important thing about acting companies, as I think you 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 know, Declan, is that um, they're moving around the country. They're actually ways of bringing information to these different nodes that they stuff up and perform. And interestingly, those kind of connections stick. So Holcroft ends up in London, ends up a radical intellectual, still an actor and a novelist in London in the 1790s. Um, But that connection sticks. William Shields is a local uh, composer. He ends up going to London, as many of these provincial people do, because London is, although they've got their own publishing hubs, of course London is, as it is now, is a kind of cultural powerhouse of production. So you, you, you obviously kind of get attracted there. Ritson carries on with his convincing his legal work to eventually get a very strange recherche job as the bailiff of the Liberty of the Savoy. And what the Liberty of the Savoy was was this anomaly, anomalous legal jurisdiction within the heart of London that still had various bylaws and arcane uh, um, rules attached to it. And of course, that's the sort of thing, rich and digging up the fact that, well, people in the liberty of Savoy is to let a right to X or Y. And actually, that had one very important uh, practical output because in 1794, the radical orator, uh, John Thelwell, was giving lectures uh, on the Strand in a place called the Beaufort Buildings And the local right-wing press, effectively, led by a guy called John Reeves, who was a chair of a thing called the Association for the Protection of Liberty and Property Against Republicans and Levellers, wants to get um, Thorwell prosecuted. And he fails twice because Ritson is able to use his knowledge of the arcane law of the liberty of Savoy to first of all get the charges thrown out and then then the second time um, uh, get him found not guilty. As it happens later, that year the government, because this fails, the government itself has to intervene and they put Thalwell on trial for for treason, uh, but he actually is acquitted because there's no case to answer the idea that he'd been trying to assassinate the king was found to be ridiculous. so Ritson's kind of antiquarian knowledge is not only that it was informed by his democratic interest, he has this idea of a culture of the people, but it actually had um, useful political consequences in the case of Thalwell in 1794.
1: during his lifetime he came into serious conflict with a number at least of other scholars why did that arise
0: that's a really good point i think and it goes back i think to what i just said about the different views of what a vernacular literature might be so there's a more general revival of interest in the literature of the past it doesn't start that what brings writs to wider public notice to a kind of literary public is that he goes on the attack for two very eminent scholars. Thomas Wharton, uh, who was an Oxford scholar, who writes a history of English poetry, and then the clergyman Thomas Percy, who's a church of England bishop, who publishes relics uh, of English poetry. And they're both interested in recovering a traditional, a long-term English history uh, of literature that doesn't depend on the classics, doesn't depend on polite French influence. But they also want to present to the public things that are made polite, that have got their rough edges and certainly got no, you know, and famously publishes songs with words like fart in them. And there's no way Bishop Percy is going to do that. And they leave certain things in and leave certain things out. And um, they even have a different theory of origin. So Percy wants to claim that the ballads are a degraded form of what was an aristocratic courtly culture. So that these are, are written and sung originally by minstrels, who were sort of servants of the rich. And that eventually, you know, in the Renaissance, that those minstrels would kind of become vagabonds. You know, they're, they're kind of itinerants who uh, circulate a culture. But originally, they're part of this aristocratic culture. Percy presents a trickle-down idea of English culture. But Ritson wants to say, no, this is the culture of the illiterate. This is a vulgar culture, and it should be celebrated as such. And that's what makes um, Ritson furious about both of them. Uh, And he's very explicit, even in the way he attacks them. He makes it clear when he brings out his... Observations on the History of English Poetry: An Attack on Wharton. He warns his readers to expect warmth of expression. He's going to go for these people, even though they're very much part of a of, of an academic hierarchy. And uh, his attack on Percy, interestingly, was published by Joseph Johnson, who later was to be the publisher of Mary Wollstonecraft and Thomas Paine. So he's already developing the kind of democratic political associations. That were to make him notorious in the 1790s and that's a very important part of his antagonism to Thomas Percy who is as a bishop you know a paid official of the church and state orthodoxy and that's what's really firing Ritson up and for somebody like Percy's simply shocked to be attacked by some nobody like this and in this manner that's part of what our age is Percy.
1: Ritson wanted to leave no record behind of himself. After he died he insisted right like, he wanted no gravestone Even yeah, yeah. he, he wasn't interested in his legacy. But Percy was wasn't he? Or at least didn't he sort of try and um, investigate
0: uh, Ritson's uh, circumstances? Yeah, so there are papers in the Beinecke collection at Yale <laughs> University some of Percy's papers there and it looks like after Ritson died that he pays somebody who lived in Percy, uh, Ritson's building to kind of send him a report of his last days uh, and basically what he builds up at the very end of the manuscript he kind of writes so this shows he he died insane so it's very important for Percy to say that well you can't take Ritson seriously because he was insane he was always insane that's what and so he basically pays informers to, to kind of find a version of Richardson's life that was story he was burning his manuscripts at the end he was going crazy he's confined in a in a mental institution but it's very important for a person to try and tell that story to claim that well right the way back in the 1780s only a mad person could have had these ideas only a mad person could have been a vegetarian as Ritson was could have believed that the, that a culture of the people was worth studying and celebrating could have held his political ideas so Percy wants to save his reputation as a polite man of letters by showing that um, Ritson is not only a scurrilous, not only a dubious radical, but is actually out of his mind as well. Godwin writes an obituary for him, incredibly flattering really, and basically
1: he says he's the greatest antiquarian of the period. Mm. And yet... He was never allowed to join the club, was he? He was rejected at least twice, I think, from when he tried to join the society. Yeah, club. well, for
0: the reasons I think we've been, we've been talking about. There is a society of antiquaries where a, a lot of clergymen are kind of ferreting around. Because it's, it's in churches that a lot of these records are held, so there's a lot of clergymen ferreting around, finding out about the English past. But there's always this sense that there's sort of grubby... There's another side of antiquarians, which is sort of grubby, dirty-fingered people looking where they shouldn't look. And so it goes beyond... The kind of clergymen doing it to people digging up all kinds of things which is partly a reflection of this provincial enlightenment people getting involved it's very it turns out to be very hard to prescribe limits to this kind of thing so there's a tension in the heart of antiquarianism, which Ritson explicitly brings out, he wants to say, let's look at the culture of the people then, let's take it seriously, let's take it beyond these kind of paid officials of the state and the society of antiquarians, and let's also do it in a way which is not being deferential, which is going for people, and he he goes for people, you know, he, he makes it clear he has no respect for certain people, and he's fairly rough, uh, um, and points out, not only that he doesn't like clergymen in the present day, but that the, the the taxi he collects, for instance, in the Robin Hood collections don't like clergymen either back then. So he was
1: um, socialising, associating with a whole range of radicals in London, wasn't he?
0: He is. Yeah. An, an interesting source for finding that out is Godwin's diary, which you can see online. William Godwin is probably the best known intellectual radical, kind of middle class intellectual radical. He himself has come from East Anglia. He's... You know, he's a product of a, uh, a provincial enlightenment who's moved to London. And he himself um, sets up this kind of social world where these people, whether they're originally from London or they've been drawn in, meet. And Ritson appears there a lot. And notwithstanding the the way that Percy tries to present him as, as a crazy, it's clear that Rod, Rod, uh, Godwin, who has a reputation of being extremely rational, saw a lot of him. They socialise, they talk about ideas. Uh, we know that... Uh, Godwin's novel, Caleb Williams, which was probably the most famous radical novel of the, the 1790s. Uh, he, he helped with the editing of that. Um, and this could be quite a knockabout. I mean, Holcroft wrote a novel which, which satirised some of Ritson's vegetarian views. But it was a culture where people could tease each other, they could play with each other. Another figure, very, very interesting thing in this culture, is the, uh, the Welsh antiquarian and radical called Edward Williams, who renamed himself Yolo Morgano and who published collections of, some of which were forgeries of, of traditional Welsh poetry. He, wa- he wants to present uh, an idea of Welsh culture as its own vibrant, autonomous thing, against an idea of a kind of official English culture of church and state. So, so Richard's very much at the centre of this hodgepodge of rediscovering a more democratic, open kind of culture, who have all being drawn to London as part of this melting pot.
1: And in terms of a northeast connection, um, he's also an associate of uh, Thomas Spence.
0: Yeah, so the radical Thomas Spence, who who is responsible for setting up one of the two most popular cheap magazines that circulate in radical ideas, Spence produces um, this journal called Pigsmute, because famously because a conservative um, MP, Edmund Burke, had dismissed uh, the people as the swinish multitude. Uh, uh, Spence sets up this radical magazine, and we know that uh, Ritson has contact with him. May and it seems like uh, Ritson even provided songs written by his nephew and other people who are back in the northeast for Spence's magazine, and certainly for the other magazine that was reaching a similar audience, which is um, Daniel Isaac Eaton's Hogwash, which, which had its title for the same reason. It's another allusion to this swinish multitude idea.
2: The Attorney General has prepared no less than three indictments against Eaton for his hog swash and a fourth against poor Spence for his pig's meat, so that these two worthy swineherds seem to have brought their hogs to a fine market. I have not yet seen the latter, but Eaton's daughter informs me that he has long made up his mind for another imprisonment.
0: Sir Richard's in the thick of it and he certainly seems to have keep his northeastern connections. He sends stuff back to his Nephew, who's still, I think, in Stockton, he tells him, you know, the next York coach will bring bring these things to you. Uh, or he says, you can find these things in the bookstop, bookshop in York. Um, and they are, you know, the letters are quite funny because his, his nephew sent him seven quid for these 12 books and pamphlets, but one of them is missing. So Richard has to try and. So there's a lot of just the, the nitty gritty of sending information, sending printed materials back up north where they'll circulate and enter this this kind of culture of a provincial enlightenment. Ritson
1: devised his own uh, s- forms of spelling, didn't he? Not unlike Thomas Spence. So um, is there a, an association between them? I think they're
0: both... I mean, it's the famous thing about English spelling that it's not very phonetic. And, you know, it, 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 it's... Uh, when you're learning English, it's a system that's hard to get in. And for people like Spence and uh, Ritson, it would have been seen as a barrier popular education you've got to learn all these sort of arcane ways of doing things rather than reflecting the way people thought so they both try and develop an orthography which is more democratic if you like because it reflects the way people speak it's a, it's a phonetic uh, spelling system
1: and he, and he assists um, northern antiquarians and town and writers of town histories doesn't he
0: yeah he's, he was very I mean although he has this reputation for being cranky and you know he liked controversy. He, he, he thought that people, you know, should be able to give and take a, in quite a, a, um, a strong way. But he was always a collab, willing to collaborate, even with people actually didn't agree with politically. So Walter Scott, from the other side of the political divide, really treasured the fact that Ritson would not stop to get to the bottom of the materials he was working with. And also the generosity with which he he circulated material. So he did send stuff to sky. He was very, very generous in putting things into circulation. In living, his principles of a provincial enlightenment, of putting knowledge into circulation and sharing stuff. So he was always providing people information. There's a side of him that's extremely pedantic. But he wanted to find out the truth. He's always trying to find what is the document behind this myth. What's the furthest back? we can go to this idea, you know, that uh, what is the basis of the Robin Hood myth? It may be a myth, but what's it based on, even if it's a myth, it's based on an idea that people thought in this way and wanted to celebrate it. So he's all the time trying to get back to the raw, um, the rough, raw version of things that's the oldest we can find, and not trying to pretty up something that makes the local region seem respectable in the ideas, in in the eyes of polite culture at the time.
1: I think in this kind of post-truth culture that we're in right now, Ritson's quite interesting because he seems actually really obsessed with finding out the facts. The facts are, are primary, and he, he even advises his his nephew to read Tories, that is, to read you know people who are absolutely you know he's absolutely politically opposed to. But he says that no, they actually at least you know they write honestly.
2: Always prefer Tory or Jacobite writers. The Whigs are the greatest liars in the world. You consult history for facts, not principles. The Whigs I allow have the advantage in the latter, and this advantage they are constantly labouring to support by a misrepresentation of the former. So truth is a really important factor to him, isn't it?
0: Yeah, so he, he is obsessed with truth. It goes to great lengths to procure and to put back into circulation the oldest version or to find out where does this idea come from. So sometimes when he's rude about Scottish Ancturians, it's because he sees them wanting to perpetuate kind of versions of their country that they prefer rather than going as far back as they can.
2: I dread a Scotchman bringing ancient verse.
0: And he, 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 he can be extremely robust about those things, but at the same time, he thinks Scottish culture is fantastic and has a, in a way, more impressive lyric culture than, than English popular culture when it comes to sort of rebelling against depression. He wants to celebrate that, but he wants to find, he wants to go back as far as
2: he can to find out the correct version of that. I am now employing myself very busily in researches after the Celts, the Picts and the Scots. People, I dare say, you give yourself no concern about. Dives, in hell torments, did not long more earnestly for a drop of water to cool the tip of his tongue than I do in this inquiry for a portion of your learning to enlighten my way. I am quite sick of the modern writers of ancient history who think to make amends by their fine language for the total want of industry, truth and candour. And that also translates into
0: his politics. He's very sceptical about the Hanoverian regime, the idea of the Glorious Revolution and the kind of Whig settlement that dominates the 18th century, that idea of English liberty, because he says that's just based, based on uh, a false assumption of the rights of the Georgias to be on the throne, you know? and, so, and uh, I think it's become a cliche about Richard that he's somebody who was a Jacobite who becomes a Jacobin, but he was a Jacobite because he thinks there's no legitimacy, there's no truth at the basis of the Hanoverian regime, and I think actually one of the first things he published was a broadside in 1778 which was called The Descent of the Crown of England, which depicted the British succession as false, And the glorious revolution as he puts it on the broadside is replete with treachery and he becomes a jacobin because he sees he wants a kind of culture that tells the truth about things are that doesn't make culture pay lip service to those in power yeah so but, but true but he will also call out things that he that he thinks are in political sympathy with him if they don't really have the antiquarian basis that he values so much so those two things a twin drivers that sometimes are in conflict for him as well. But that idea of a culture of the people and the idea of getting to the truth of it as much as possible,
1: yeah. I mean, he, he says about Holcroft, he becomes a little disillusioned with Holcroft, doesn't he? When, when, it, when the trials are taking place and so on, He's, he starts to think maybe Holcroft's grandstanding, really.
0: Yes, he thinks that um, it's a very Godwinian idea, but truth to say, it's Godwin and Holcroft, the whole of this circle, they believe that truth in itself will always out. And Ritson says, you know, that's just um, grandstanding. And when it comes to it, they don't really go there. And he said the person he admires most was Thelwald, because Thelwald is the one who continually gets up and addresses popular audiences. Because some of these radical intellectuals like Holcroft and Godwin, when it came to it, they were not that comfortable in in the kind of uh, robust... Popular culture itself—they had ideas about democracy, but are not necessarily interested in the sort of knockabout. Where the thing about Thurlow is, Thurlow would get up on a popular platform and address what, what would be called a mixed audience. Similarly with Spence, you know, Spence's the, the descriptions of Spence's shop and how filthy it was. People—I mean—spies go in for the government to buy shops to try and trap him for sedition, and that one of the things they were point out is not only how disgusted they are with the ideas of circulation, but that it's filthy and disgusting. So um, Ritson was a bit sceptical about some gentleman radicals, if you like, or polite radicals, who we thought tried to place themselves above uh, the culture of the people in the name of truth, as they would have seen it.
1: After visiting Paris in 1791 with his friend, the composer William Shield, Ritson adopted the Republican calendar, and began to address his friends as citizen in his letters. The correspondence with his nephew particularly reveals the development of his political position. In a letter written in January 1794, he describes the portraits on the walls of
2: his Inn chambers. The excellent author, Rousseau, looks down upon me. On the other side of the fireplace hangs the sarcastic Voltaire, while the enlightened and enlightening Thomas Paine fronts the door which is probably the reason, by the way, that scarce anybody has entered it since he made his appearance. While many withdrew their support for the French Republic once the terror started in
1: 1793, Ritson became increasingly committed and certain that revolution was coming to England. Can you give us a, a, um, just for for perhaps people who might not be as familiar familiar with it, can you give us a, a broad picture of of the political circumstances
0: in the 1790s. So I think one of the interesting things about the 1790s is that um, a lot of things that people thought were going to happen in terms of this provincial enlightenment, if you see what I mean, that there was going to be a broadening of access to education, there was a sort of assumption about a liberalisation of culture and that there would be reform and extension of the franchise. Once the French Revolution happens, and the authorities get scared. A lot of the things you could say in 1785, you could no longer say. And if you like, culture goes into reverse. It starts to be pleased much more carefully. It hadn't been a free for all before. You could still get uh, um, arrested for seditious libel. There was always post-publication censorship, even though the myth of English liberties is that there was no censorship. It's that there was no pre-publication censorship for most of the 18th century. So once the French Revolution gets underway, writers intellectuals if you like people are doing this sort of thing that ritsons are doing that they'd happily done are suddenly having to be much more careful about what they say there are spies and informers and Thelwell writes a lot about the role of spies and informers we know there were spies and informers at his lectures uh, it's one reason Rit- ritson uh, he's been very brave when he starts to address his correspondence to citizen, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, because people's letters are being opened by the post office. And it's clear that he, he's aware that some of his correspondents, some of his anti correspondents, are a bit anxious about this. So that things that had been, that people had been uncomfortable with in the 1780s, if you like, that clearly had a politics, but you could get away with In the 1790s, suddenly, that's a much tighter thing. You're called out more and you may even be arrested and put on trial as Thurmal was, as Spence was, and indeed as Daniel Isaac Eaton. They were all arrested and put on trial at different times for publishing um, seditious libels as they as they were seen.
1: And there's a there's a sort of marked change, isn't there, in the 1790s following events in France. But Ritson seems to stay very much on board.
0: I think he does do. He's somebody who worries about what robespierre does and think thinks the, the the French Revolution may take some wrong terms, but he doesn't basically Resile from his belief that there needs to be some sort of democratic revolution. So he isn't somebody who thinks that in itself was a mistake. He stays the course, really, uh, and and takes quite a lot of, of risk. Um, um, and, you know, I think by the time he dies, he is under a lot of mental pressure. I mean, I, don't, I, I, I think if he is suffering from mental illness, it's because it's extremely stressful to be believing the things he believes in and wanting to have access to various cultural platforms and outlets because you can't get published anymore there's there's a letter where he talks about whether one of the collections that he published in the 1780s might come out again in a new edition and he says he's doubt if there's any bookseller who's brave enough he he imagines the, the the bookseller at the published the first edition i think it is of that was was joseph johnson who actually himself gets was who, always thought of as being quite a polite reformer but he ends up in in prison in 1798 for publishing an anti, anti-war tract by the very respectable um uh radical gilbert wakefield uh, so yeah there's a there's a lot of danger and 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 you would have felt the pressure if you're tr- even things that are coded they're not explicitly political but are kind of celebrating a culture of the people that's gonna get you looked at very closely as now we know that Percy was looking at him very closely in the kind of final days and after his death to, to present an idea of him as somebody who wasn't just improper but actually insane.
1: Ritson's correspondence reveals that he was becoming increasingly concerned about his inability to concentrate and in September 1803 he set fire to his manuscripts in his chambers, after which he was taken to an establishment in Hoxton, in London's East End, an area that was synonymous with lunacy, as most of London's madhouses were there.
0: He clearly has some kind of breakdown at the end of his life. Um, As I've said before, he's living under intense pressures. In some ways, everything he believes in is hit a buffer. The idea of a provincial enlightenment, the spread of knowledge is kind of... Facing a kind of period of reaction, you know, Napoleon's kind of, um, just, I think, exceeded to the throne in France. There's little prospect of any kind of liberal change in Britain. He's surrounded by enemies in print and, and probably in real life. His friends, like Godwin, are kind of having to go underground, has to set up a children's bookshop to try and make a living. Uh, and he ends up dying in a London uh, lunatic asylum. And he's buried in Bunhill Fields in the east of London. Uh, traditional burying place for dissenters. Indeed, he is sharing some. Uh, he's in very good company with some other marginal figures, or people who were marginal figures when they died, including William Blake, who, he, um, who actually provided engravings for one of his volumes published by Joseph Johnson in the 1780s, and they're there, in the same field. One of whom, Narasingan, is seen as a great visionary, but was actually a marginal, marginal person in his lifetime. That's Blake. Another one who, in his, his in his way, was a great visionary, somebody who made things happen, but he's now more or less completely forgotten. And I think that's something we're aiming to do something about today.
1: So, would you say then, um, in the final analysis, that Ritson deserves to belong in the biographical?
0: Yeah, I certainly would. He's somebody who stands for this idea of the um, the circulation of knowledge around this region beyond. The kind of Oxbridge and Cambridge and London, the kind of uh, venerable accredited centres of learning. Uh, um, but another thing, is, he's one of these figures, these small figures who are lost to history are absolutely essential, as linked in bringing people together, making information available, making it possible to have the major figures like Wordsworth, you know, without them, without the kind of ground, without the sort of fertile soil they create, there will be no big plants, there will be no giant trees. You know? And you could say that cultural history and literary history ought to be less focused on the individual genius, and ought to be thinking about culture more generally, what makes it fertile and what makes for circulation Uh, and what makes things happen. And Ritson is one of those people who made things happen. A lot of people didn't like it, but a lot of people did.
1: I'll leave the last words of this episode to Ritson's good friend Walter Scott, who reviewed his last publication, a collection of romances published three years after Ritson's death. Let it be remembered to his honour that, without encouragement of private patronage or of public applause, without hope of gain and under the certainty of severe critical censure, he has brought forward such a work on national antiquities as in other countries has been thought worthy of the labour of universities and the countenance of princes. By separating into one biographicon, this peculiar class of lives, a philanthropic emulation would be excited, a debt of social gratitude would be discharged, a trophy to patriotism would be erected, and an instructive knowledge of the present state of nations and the gradual concatenation of intercourse would be diffused. Literature should rear altars, to the missionaries of human civilization.